Hey, hello everyone. This is Sean Simons, PPG Grandpa. Welcome to PPG Grandpa's Paramotor Podcast. You can get us on iTunes, which you're probably probably listening to right now. But recently, we have decided to go live stream. So we're doing a live stream on Zoom, bringing in different people and having a big group talking live. We are going to put the show on ppggrandpa.com, so you'll be able to watch it if you want to. However, we are stripping out the audio and putting it here so you will be able to listen to it in your car and not be distracted by looking at your phone. Hope you all are doing well. This is the show and we will catch you after the show for a quick close. All right. Good deal. All right. So we are two minutes before the actual show. So we will continue to do this pre-show just to make sure everything's good. Today we're going to be talking about the 15 most frequently asked questions about PPG, even though we have Tom Kubat and Andrew Finnegan on here. We also have Nick, the PPG Nick. Nick, are you officially PPG Nick yet? Yes. You are? I got to get the website done. And uh, today we're just going to be talking about the 15 most frequently asked questions about power paragliding. Now, unfortunately, I think that a lot of people that are watching this probably already know the answers. And at the end of this hour podcast, we are going to be opening up Zoom to everybody so they can come in here and actually chat with us. It'll be a big party. And uh, we can party like it's 1999. I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember that I do and it was a hell of a party wait you guys are young aren't you how 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 old are you Andrew 40 40 yep you're just a young and how about you Tom I'm 31 man all these youngins Nick you're 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 younger than me too aren't you 42 42 and I'm almost 51 all right so you guys got a lot of a lot on me, unfortunately. All right, we are at seven o'clock. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. My name is Sean Simons, PPG Grandpa. We also have PPG Nick. Nick, go ahead and introduce yourself, please. My name's Nick Spikas. Uh, call signs KC8 or W. I still don't understand what you said there. That's uh, I'll call you Nick. How, how about you, Tom? Who are you? I'm Tom Kubot, and I fly paramotors. He does, doesn't he? And Andrew, who are you? I'm Andrew Finnegan. I'm kind of new in the paramotor world, but a lot of the paramotor guys I fly with used to be in the FPV world where I used to be. So it's kind of like I've come over from the RC FPV to flying for real. So how much flying did you actually do? I mean, did you do quads or or airplanes or what? Uh, I did quads and airplanes. Um, I have a copy of that 58-inch wing that Trap used to fly around the Statue of Liberty that he got in trouble with. Oops, somebody got in trouble but, um, there. I started in uh, 2012, 2011-ish, and I've been um, building my, uh, I, I came, so I have a ham radio license too, KK4LJL, and I actually got it because I used to fly my wings seven miles out and into the clouds, which I do not do that anymore because the FAA came down really hard on everybody. But um, uh, I got code checked into flight controllers. I've worked on speed controllers. So, so I'm kind of like a, an old school FPV guy that um, helped build FPV back in the old days. 
Wow. That, that's really cool. And Tom, you do a lot of videos on, on YouTube. And one of the things that I saw last was you talking about the thrust lines of a PPG. How long have you been in the paramotor and how do you know these things? Um, yeah, so I've, I've been flying paramotor since 2015. I learned, took my first flight in August of 2015. Um, so that's my experience flying. It's just years of flying. And then, um, as far as that video where I explain the torque and all that, that's just, yeah, I'm not an expert in that obviously, but it's just the best way I could describe it. And I did that kind of the preface, um, what I was going to be building onto my adventure pluma. So I'm trying to put, I'm going to build a lot of carbon fiber, some fins on there to add that kind of scout like uh, dynamic torque compensation on there. So that's pretty cool and nick you're into ppg and you're also in the ham radio give us a little background oh god in the ham radio office i was about 13 years old been flying for years um generally fixed wing but uh decided this past last summer to get back into ppg and uh love every minute of the going with new stuff it's so much safer when we played with back in the day and uh, I'm really, really super new. I've been only flying for six months, but I took my first SIV course this last weekend. And uh, I think I learned more in the last two days of the SIV course than I did in the last six months of actually flying. So mm -hmm. as far as experience, we got four people up here with a little bit of experience and a lot of, uh, a lot of knowledge, but we're definitely not experts. So what we're going to do today is we're going to answer the 15 most frequently asked questions and the first one is where can you fly a powered paraglider um tom since you are the guest where where do you fly a powered paraglider where can you fly so when people ask me this i say you can pretty much fly it anywhere so most of the airspace that covers uh, the united states class g and class e uh, we can fly in that right and pretty much any open field and any public airport you can fly from usually, most public airports. So where I'm from in South Carolina, fields are pretty hard to come by. <clears throat> I'm from the Charleston area. That's where I live right now, rather. And there is basically nothing but trees here. So when I first moved here, I was really excited because I was thinking I was going to be able to fly on the beach a lot. Um, and we occasionally do, but it's actually illegal to launch from the beach. So we kind of have to sneak there or have a handshake agreement with some, some DNR guys to let us fly. Um, and it's it's less frequent than than you'd think, and there's like no fields. So I learned how to fly in Indiana, where it was nothing but open fields, and uh, I kind of didn't know how good I had it until I left. And um, now we're forced to fly from construction sites until they shut us down, or uh, public airports, which we're lucky enough to have a a pretty awesome airport around here. Um, that is, we got an agreement with the airport manager. He's basically asked us to fly there. It's kind of out in the middle of nowhere, very, very low traffic, and there's a little ultralight club that's there too, so we're all friends and we get to fly there, so we're, we're fortunate enough to have a, a good airport and a good airport manager supporting us. That's a good thing you're supporting the airport too, because that gets you know, more traffic there, it brings mm -hmm. people into the, uh, the airport. Yeah, and I've had, I've had my interactions with airport managers in the past uh, where it, you know, they were kind of frustrated with me based on some reports of, of that people made about me that were incorrect. So I've, I've got, I've got experience, you know, dealing with that and kind of resolving those, those issues and things like that. But um, there's an airport even closer to me that I call my home base, but 
we're kind of restricted there where if we have a big group of guys, we try not to go there. It's more of a show up, launch and leave scenario. So, you know, it's not, not as fun. I like to hang around the LZ and rip around and land and switch wings and things like that. That's kind of the flying I like to go, do when I'm with a large group. So how'd you find this large group when you first started? I mean, is there a place online? You just meet up with some friends and they meet you, get up with some other friends or how does that work? Yeah. So now I think it's probably easier now with um, how popular the sport's gotten with the, the Facebook uh, paramotor page. It's pretty easy to find guys. But when I moved here, um, I just reached out to my buddy, Eric Farewell at Aviator PPG and asked if he knew anybody out here. And he hooked me up with a dude who lived out here. And uh, I still fly with him, but most of the guys that I fly with um, are newer pilots who have just gotten into the sport and found me on Facebook. So um, we have a, a decently sized group here now. I think the other night we had probably six or seven pilots come. We had some come from Colombia. Um, I mean, it might, it might have even been more than that, but we had, we had a bunch of guys out there at the airport. And uh, my general group is about four people, three, four people. Okay. How about you, Andrew? Um, how'd you find a bunch of people to go fly with when you first got into the sport? So um, I trained at Aviator and uh, um, Mike Brown at Aviator flies from down here. He's flown down here 15, 20 years. So he called up uh, the, um, Andy, PP, Andy PPG, which is a guy that's down here that um, he's like, hey, you know, help Andrew out, you know, figure out where to fly and, and the spots. So so I have two two spots near me, but I had to get um, PPG2 rating. Um, I had a USUA insurance, else they won't let you fly because the city kind of, you know, you only can fly there with a city permit. And then I have the airport that's an hour and a half south of me or an hour north of me, which kind of sucks, but South Florida is hugely, hugely dense. But the the crew down here, they're, they're a bunch of goofball. Like this, like the day that we were flying up and down Miami Beach last time when I was with, when I took this picture, uh, there's 12 of us going down the beach so um we we have we have quite a crowd uh, we do uh um we do cross countries we do just goofing off at the you know safe, safe goofing off at the uh the airport the two places near me is a take off and and get out of dodge thing though it's only like take off go to 1500 feet and then just you know watch the sunset and then quietly come down and land that's all they want you to do there which is kind of annoying but it's better than nothing yeah, absolutely. And Nick, um, how about you? How did you find people to fly with? I, the only time I get to fly with people going to fly in, trying to find some local pilots. Uh, I've met a few uh, up in the Columbus area. Um, as soon as the weather breaks where I can actually fly, take a trip down there and go fly with them. How long you been Pretty flying much. for, Nick, you said? The what? How long were you flying for? You been flying for? Oh, I've been flying since I was 18. But, uh, I only did about two years of PPG back in the day, all oh, probably 15, 16 years ago for a year oh, or so. Wow. And then I just last summer decided I'm taking it back up, decided to get back in the air. Okay. That's good. Um, I just started, like I said, just started getting into this about six months ago. And I found that my instructor had a, a bunch of people that he directed me to. And then that those people actually had a group that I joined up. So every time that they started going out to fly, I'd tag along with them. And that's how I found the different places that, that we've gone. Um, there was 
uh, matter of fact, a lot of it was, let's see, one of them was Pinnacle Mountain State Park, which was right down the road from it, which was really nice. Uh, there's actually a place called Cypress Creek. It's a whole neighborhood with a grass airstrip in between, which is really neat. Hey, Kevin, Kevin can fly. What's up, man? And uh, that was really awesome. So, Kevin, are you online? Can you hear us? Still connecting audio. Give me a sec. All right. So what we'll do is uh, we will go to the next one. Is a license required to fly a powered paraglider? Uh, Tom, what's the answer to that one? So this one's easy. When people ask me that, I say, no license required. Legally, I could strap this on your back and you can go fly right now. And then I say, but that would not be a good idea. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it seems like um, PPG is like a... Uh, a scooter or a moped to a motorcycle. Most places that have a scooter or moped, you don't need to have it licensed or insured, um, and you don't even need a driver's license. It's kind of like the same thing. Uh, Kevin can fly. Good afternoon. Good evening. How are you, man? How's it going? Another beautiful day in paradise. Um, real quick, what is your background? And I hear that you are an instructor now. That is correct. So, my background is one of uh, being blessed, I guess you'd say. My grandpa was a, a helicopter pilot in Vietnam and then was a general aviation pilot. Uh, my dad was a general aviation pilot. We had a Cessna and a, a Piper Tripacer when I was growing up. And then we had a couple Cherokees. And so aviation was always part of my life. Uh, I grew up five minutes. It's away from Saboba Feet Speed Flying Hill. So that was right in the backyard as well. So right out of high school, I decided that I needed to go fly around under a napkin. So I went and did some training with the guys at Saboba and then took several years and uh, didn't do really any flying. I started a family and bought a house and went to work and did all that stuff. Progressed through life and then decided I wanted to come back to it. I couldn't lose my love of flying. So I went and retrained with Max Rock Paragliding here in Portland and got recertified. And then I've been flying paragliders for about five years and then decided uh, about six or seven months ago to devote my time solely and only to paramotors. So I've spent the last six months flying basically three or four times a week, um, like 40, 50 hours a month, just killing as much time on the motor as possible. And then I decided this spring that I wanted to share everything that I have learned with uh, flying with other people. So I've started training the guys in my area. Well, congratulations. That's awesome. You missed our very first question, which is, where can you fly a power paraglider? What's your answer to that one? Well, I, was, I was in the chat for a minute. I saw Tom's answer, and I, I think he was pretty much spot on with that one. Um, you know, being in Oregon, we have 180 miles of valley that's all class G, class E. So we have un unlimited amounts of space to go fly. And uh, I personally like small uh, municipal airports because you're viewed as an aircraft at those locations. If you fly out of a park or um, like public use land, then you kind of get viewed as a nuisance. It's almost like bringing a pit bike to the park and people, they just don't seem to understand that the only impact you have is with your, your feet running across. I mean, it's the same as playing soccer. I'm not doing any more damage than a soccer player would. I'm not even wearing cleats, but 
the fact that that thing has a big whirly motor making noise obviously means it's trouble. So, um, you know, the, the easy, easy place is, is a municipal airport if you have one. If not, um, public, public use land, because according to FAR, uh, public use land for our use as long as it's used safely. And that's a very loose used term. So everything about the FARs is a very loose used term. They write those so they can blame you. Exactly. Um, Pilot in command. <laughs> yeah. And then two was, is the license required? No. Uh, number three, what kind of fuel is used in a power paraglider? Now that one is, I guess, there are many different choices, but most of it is just regular gasoline you can get at your gas station. But uh, Andrew, what kind of gas do you use in your paramotor? So um, I go down to the Wawa down the street and I get the non-ethanol stuff, uh, 90 um, proof non-ethanol. And I, I use that because I heard the ethanol can do weird things to your motor. Some some mm -hmm. people say it doesn't, but uh, so um, yeah. Pretty much it, but if you mix the oil with the gas, if it goes longer than than a month, then I I replace the gas on it because I don't take chances with my paramotor, of course. Okay, and Tom, what do you use in your paramotor? Yep, I just use eighty-seven uh, non-ethanol, but like I said, I only use non-ethanol because if it if it sits in there, it can have adverse effects on your uh, on certain fuel lines, and you know some people don't don't think it does, but it 100% will degrade certain types of fuel lines. I don't know if the fuel lines on my paramotor would be or not, but it's readily available to me. So I use 87 non-ethanol. Um, I, I use the same, I use the same thing. Yeah, yeah, I use the same thing, uh, 87. How about you, Nick? What do you use in your paramotor? I've been solely using aviation gas. I prefer the 100 okay. volt lead. doesn't go bad. I can mix it up, sit for a year or two, and I'm still good. That's good. How about you, Kevin? What do you use at your uh, school? Uh, I burn the Texaco premium clear fuel, so that's a 93 octane non-ethanol. Well, what's what's the what is a clear fuel? Uh, I don't know specifically what makes it clear fuel. I just know that's what they advertise it as. They call it clear fuel, and it's 100 percent gasoline with no ethanol, so it's 100 percent non-ethanol. It's a little and more expensive, what, is, though. Is that what it shows on the pump? I mean, I've never heard of that before. Yeah, they've got their own little gas pump that's separate from the gas station. It's like where you would find like maybe the Tesla charger would be. And it's uh -huh. one standalone pump and it says clearly on it, clear gas. And even the little flapper knob that you tap when you select your grade of fuel, it, it's got a clear gas symbol on it. And the guy tells mm -hmm. me that it's not the Texaco brand that they import <laughs> it through someone else, but that's what I've been using because it's non-ethanol. And it's probably about... Almost, but that's a really well. thing to have gas. It's probably the same pure gasoline. It just doesn't have the lead, I think, is what it boils down to. Maybe, it, maybe it's missing all those detergents that they add to gas. That's what I'm trying to figure out. Well, it's missing all the other garbage they put in what they call gasoline yeah. today. Because what they call gasoline, they, it has like 40% gasoline in it and a bunch of other chemicals. And there's a shell station around the corner from my house and they have the exact same setup over there. It's the same standalone pump with the same clear fuel. The shell station just likes to charge like 28 cents more a gallon for it. Yeah. Is, is there a, is there a, um, a website that shows where these clear fuels are located? 
or how did you find it? I, I was driving by and looking at gas pumps as I was motoring, trying to find some place that had non-ethanol. And when I saw the sign, I said, hmm, let's try that. Hmm. But oh, if any, sorry, I was going to say, if anyone's listening who's new and they're, they're curious about this, because if you search this topic on any of the forums, people just fight about it. And what it yep. comes down to, I think, is if you, I mean, you can use pretty much any gas as long as you use a good two-stroke oil and you don't let your fuel sit. So if you're, if you're, using your fuel and not letting it sit in your motor and your fuel lines and you're doing your your maintenance every year swapping your fuel lines out cleaning your filters rebuilding the carb I and mean, this is like twenty dollars worth of maintenance that for an aircraft is i mean you're flying it so why not just do the maintenance and it's I, personally i like tinkering with my motor i like getting my hands on it it acts as a pre-flight doing this kind of maintenance so once a year swap your stuff if you use ethanol in your gas it's not going to matter really if you're rebuilding your carb and changing your fuel lines but you know, it's, it's whatever's available to you. So if you don't live near a, a gas station that sells non-ethanol, just cycle your fuel more often and don't let it sit in your motor. Fly more is the, is the cure for that, right? Exactly. Yeah, you're right. You can look out there on the internet or listen to different podcasts. And when it comes to fuel, everyone will have their own thing. I think that Avgas is probably the best because I was using 87 non-ethanol. I tried 97. And then when my friend had the Avgas and tried it, I had the best flight, the best compression, and the, uh, the, the highest RPMs that I think I ever had. So I don't know if I could get the Avgas, I would, but my local uh, airport uh, wants to have it in a special Avgas container, and I don't know where to get it or, or, or how to even get it. So I don't know. So I think we already touched on this number four. How long does one tank of fuel last? I think that it's pretty much what size tank you have, and are you burning a, a Atom 80, a Moster 185, or or maybe a, a, a 230, you know, um, what, what, what motor are you burning, right? So, uh, Tom, what, what would you say if somebody said, how long does a tank of gas last? I usually, my standard answer for that is I can fly for two hours with some reserve. But if they want to discuss it more, I mean, I fly a lot of different wings. And, I, you know, if I'm going cross country, I can make it last for two plus hours. But the style of flying that I usually do, it doesn't last that long because I'm usually full throttle, kind of ripping it. And um, But, yeah, I'll, I'll say you could stay in the air for three hours if you really wanted to. And what, what size tank do you have? It's a 12-liter tank, which I think is pretty standard for most most paramotors with the Moster 185 on it. Okay. Um, does anybody else have an answer for that one? I just, it really depends on pilot style. I mean, if you're up there just cruising around, you know, half throttle, just you know, hanging out, you're not going to burn near as much fuel as you're doing acro or doing quick runs, you know, low to the ground or you're in and out of throttle a lot, you're going to eat a lot more fuel. And the, the wing, choice. yeah, I was going to say the wing is, is the probably the biggest thing, right? I have a, an 18 meter Z blade that I fly that gets um, a much worse fuel burn than my 15 meter free ride. And that's just because of efficiency differences, right? So, yeah, the wing plays a huge role. Yeah, if you got a lot of lift and not much weight on it, you're not going to need the throttle a whole lot. I would yep. say also, also put at least like a liter of extra gas in there because you never know when, when your your landing zone, something's going on with it or whatever. Also, get a mirror you, so you can check. Yeah, I run out of fuel a bunch of times, actually, but that's usually <laughs> when I'm too excited and I just keep landing and flying and landing and flying, I end up running out of fuel. So it's only really bit me hard one time. 
and I had to land pretty far out, but still had a buddy come pick me up. So Tom will oh, land out that reserve. Yeah. That's his phone. <laughs> yeah, and I dropped my phone two times. Talking to the wife, give her a heart attack. You're like, no, things are going fine, babe. Oh shit. Yeah. She yeah, that night she was freaking out, man. <laughs> oh, yeah that, that was your video that you had to circle around it was that night you were talking to her on the phone and then you dropped yeah. it yeah i was flying a new motor without my reserves so i didn't have my my cockpit on there you know yeah. and i it's literally the first time i flew without my phone tethered in since the last time i dropped it i dropped my phone went out and bought a tether flew with it exclusively then took the tether off for this one flight dropped my phone again and i happened to be on the phone with my wife when i did it and it dropped into a like a no service zone into a construction site so i couldn't even land and call her i had to land hunt for the phone type the text get back in the air for it to get signal and uh, by the time i did that she was in the car with the kids coming to yeah. search for me so that's, that's she a good lesson right there don't fly without a tether yeah yeah and i figure i was just i'm just going up for a minute i'm not even gonna take my phone out of my pocket and then i wanted to listen to music so Oh, that's, that's a good topic to, to change over to real quick is um, tethering the phone. How do you make sure that your phone does not fall a couple of times? Mine fell a couple of times. Tom's did. How about the rest of y'all? You ever drop a phone yet? Never drop one yet. And I always have it on tether. Andrew's got the same setup I got, I think, there. Yeah, I'll take the virtual background off. Yeah, Texas Paramotor sells a really nice tether set. Who yeah, does? I have... Uh, so, oh, he said Texas Motor, I think. Yeah, Texas Paramotor is one that I got mine through. It's just a little. So yeah, I got, I got the radio vest that I wear in the center right here with the cables going to my helmet, and then I keep my phone right here. But my my case has a thing on the top, and this is just hooked to to the thing. So the only problem with the tether is, is if you ever try to take it out and take a picture or whatever, this thing's like pulling on you. So you end up having your, your motor in your hand and you're like, you start doing weird things to not have it pull on you. Can barely hear you, Andrew. Oh, that's better. Can you hear me now? Okay. Yeah, I hear you Sorry. now. And, I also... uh, and for all of you that were that are listening to this podcast on iTunes, Andrew, can you kind of visually explain what you uh, were, okay. were showing us? So, so I have a radio vest where the radio sits in, and my tether is hooked to my radio vest. So I have it in the front pocket. And where the tether is, is it's, it's a, I got the steel cable one. And it's, it just, it's like the same thing you'd have for, with an ID badge at, if you work at a corporate office. So basically you have your phone in a case that has a, a lanyard or a place that the tether can hook onto. And then when you, you pull on this little spring thing, so so the uh, cord comes out and it auto retracts, because you don't you don't want to have any long cables hanging off your paramotor, because if that gets back to the prop, forget it. <laughs> right. Any input, Kevin? I I have mine on a three sixteenths diameter bungee cord, like the one that you'd find on a backpack or something like that. It allows me to okay. you know stretch it out and get a good picture or a good good image, but also, if it dangles, it doesn't get as far as my knees, so it works both ways. All right, good deal. Well, we're up to number five out of 15, and we're in 25 minutes into the show. Uh, we might need to pick it up or uh, do a, a, a ne uh, another part of the show. 
Um, what is the average speed at which a power paraglider can fly? Tom, you got this one. The standard answer is 30. And then I go into detail about speed bar and trimmers, but 30 miles an hour is my standard. 2,000 feet, 30 miles an hour is what I tell people. And they, they think that's cool. So <laughs> That is pretty cool. I, I, I thought it was more like 25, but maybe for, for my wing with trims in, it's 25. What do you think, Nick? What is the, uh, what's the standard um, speed at which a PPG can fly? That, that sounds about right. Uh, 25 to 30. Seems to be about standard. I mean, I've seen guys that are getting up 45 and 50 on speed bar with the trims out on a, a spicier wing. But, you know, a, begin, a good beginner to intermediate wing, 25, 30 mile an hour all day long. My wing will do 50, but your eyes water at 50. It's no fun. <laughs> Doesn't sound yeah, fun. I, on a 24-meter on a spider, it's rated to 120 kg, and I fly it right at the top, right at 120 kg. And according to the four-flight GPS, I show right at about 31 knots with the trims at mid-trim. Now, now, Kevin, when when people go to your school and, you know, they don't want to go really fast, you know, maybe their old grandpa or something, they're like, hey, you know what, I just want to go up. I want to fly around and come in and, and, and enjoy myself. So, you know, what's the slowest that one could fly? you know, if, if they're old and just, you know, or, or they just want to, you know, cruise around and they're not out there for speed, like when I first started. Well, this, like I explained to people is speed's a relative thing. You know, once, once your feet leave the ground, whether you're doing five miles an hour or 50 miles an hour, there's, there's no relative difference because you're, you're not passing telephone poles. You don't have the stripes on the road that you're zinging past. It's, it's just kind of the world floats around you. So unless you're getting down real low and then starting to try maneuvers that wouldn't necessarily fit the criteria you described, that the speed is, is almost irrelevant. But with a B-wing, especially a low B-wing, with the trim sucked all the way in slow, I mean, you're flying just barely over a running speed. I mean, you could probably stall out and, and still catch yourself and run out of it. Which is kind of like when you're landing anyways, right? Pretty close, yeah. The difference, the difference that, that I instruct people when we land is more energy is always better. So I instruct them to land with the trims about the middle position. And then when they dive at the ground, they time the flare as if you were going to do a foot drag, basically. And then you just let your toe kind of dangle over the grass and bleed your energy. And then just about the time you feel like you're starting to settle, you just feed the rest of the input the rest of the way in and jog the rest of the way out because your feet are already at ground level. So there's not really a vertical transition. I find a lot of people flare a little bit too high and then they have about a one to two foot vertical drop when they actually come to the ground and it sets them off to the left or off to the right and that's what causes them to bang the cage and then bend their frame up. I know that when I first started, one of the things that I was really afraid of, this is question number six, what happens when the engine of your PPG stops? Tom, what happens when you're up there and all of a sudden your motor stops? Are you just going to drop out of the sky and, and splat or what happens? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just land, man. You never should be flying in a spot where um, if your motor dies, you can't have a uneventful landing. So whenever you see those videos of motor out issues, that's all all pilot error. So if there's ever an issue or an accident that's a result of um, your motor dying, that's that's the pilot's fault. 
100%. Because actually PPG stands for powered paragliding. So what we're doing is we're paragliding with power. So if our motor goes out while we're paragliding, we just continue to paraglide. There's mm. no falling out of the sky. It's no big deal. Kevin, uh, what happens when a student says, man, if my motor goes out, I'm afraid. What, what, kind, of, uh, what, what kind of stuff do you, what, what do you tell them to, to ease their nerves and calm them down a little bit? I, I find that to be a question of a student that hasn't yet experienced the school. Um, as, as we progress through the kiting, we also go to the coast and then we take short flights off of the dune, which allows them to fly with just a paragliding harness and take 20, 30 second sled rides. And that in its own right teaches you exactly what the wing does when there's nothing but you hanging from it. So by the time they get to a, the motor transition position, it's, it's not necessarily a concern of what will I do as much as like we just discussed, where am I gonna go and do it? And that's when we start discussing mechanical rotor behind trees, mechanical rotor behind buildings, uh, correct field decision, like whether the field's been freshly plowed or whether it's grass. I mean, mm -hmm. a, a tall grass field might make you crash, but it's gonna be a softer grassy landing. Whereas a plowed field, you might roll and break an ankle because it's a freshly plowed field. So, you know, the decision-making is, is what I say makes the difference between a good pilot and a good pilot. Wing overs and, and barrel rolls is awesome, but if you're crashing into trees because you're too excited and too panicked, then you need to reassess what evaluates you as a, a cautious person because okay. cool stuff does not always mean caution. It just means cool. Exactly. Andrew, do you have anything to weigh in on that? too much uh just say you got to be careful i mean there's the i they they teach you that teach they teach this in the rc world is there's the four c's there's mm -hmm. cautious controlled cocky crash and you want to stay at caution i mean controlled is where you want to have your phone <laughs> and you, right you dip in the slight cocky but you come back to control but yeah if you if you're in cocky land all the time you're just one way from just, just like any piloting any aircraft Always be yeah. looking for an out. Always be looking for somewhere to land. The whole time you're flying, you should always be thinking, if the motor goes out, where am I going to land? Is that too? Yep, that too, definitely. And if you don't That's think what you can I do. glide, where you, if you're going to cross something where you don't think you can glide to a landing spot, go higher. Give yourself altitude. Give yourself time. That's what's really scary. Okay. I thought it was funny. Kyle O did a whole video about teaching students on a sick motor. And then it helped the students to understand that even having a sick motor is not a weird thing because it's still just a glider and you still just fly the wing. Yeah, the motor's just Doing pushing both. you through the air. The motor's not, you know, doing anything for you except for giving you thrust. So this, this is my background picture. You see these beaches right here? We We're just understanding that perspective. It's no, yeah, definitely. Uh, I was just saying, this is a real life example. Um, we had to climb up high over those water crossings and then we have these beaches as our outs and we had flotation on, of course, because you, you, you have to have, you have to stack the, uh, the stuff in your direction. Stack the odds. Definitely stack the odds. And if you guys are listening to this as an audio podcast on iTunes, make sure you go over to www.iloveppg.com and take a look at the video. This is a Zoom video that we're doing, so you'll actually be able to see Andrew talking about 
the picture that's actually behind him. Going on to number seven, what are the times and conditions when one cannot fly a powered paraglider? I thought you could just go out there at any time. It's hailing or raining. You could just fly that anywhere. No, you can't. So, Tom, so where's what are the times and conditions when you really should not fly? Um, I, so you should not fly probably most of the time. So it's easier to describe when you should fly. Um, so I guess a kind of a conversation we could have around this is, like I said, a lot of people reach out to me, like newer pilots in the area and ask me questions and I kind of get a feel for how they, they think about PPG and they're excited to fly to work and they're excited to fly here and fly there. And it's kind of disheartening to shut them down like that because um, the truth of it is, is, I mean, it's probably what 20%, at least where I live, maybe 10, 20% of the time you can fly. Um, and ideal conditions arise probably less than that, right? Ideal in my eyes is nil wind or below like three mile an hour. Cause I like to fly really low. Um, but yeah, I mean, you should not fly most of the time. So you shouldn't fly probably midday until you, um, Maybe like PPG Grandpa has done taking an SIV course or built up your hours so you really know how to fly that wing and you understand what the weather's doing, understand thermals, understand the risk involved maybe, right? Understand that there could be dust devils and crazy things happening in midday conditions. Um, so in general, first two hours of the day, last two hours of the day, and um, no rain, perfect conditions only. It would be the answer to that, I would say. I see I see videos where Somebody was Somebody flying, was flying and it started to rain. rain. It got really wet on that wing and they had to, had to come down for a crash landing. landing. So that doesn't so that sound like a very good thing. Kevin, uh, what do you think uh, about you think flying in the rain? rain? Real quick, Sean. Um, oh, yes, we're Kevin. getting some some real, pretty bad audio from you. And I didn't know if it was just me, but the chat is saying it as well. Yeah. It sounds like yeah, your audio has got real bad. Yeah. You, you turned into an auto-tune T-Pain over there. Yeah. <laughs> No, flying in the rain, I mean, I, I fly here in Oregon at the coast, and it's one of the number one things that we're kind of taught not to do through training, but as like Tom said, you don't get perfect days, especially like the Pacific Northwest, we get lots of rain. So we do what we call squall hopping. So you'll get up on launch, you'll get your gear prepped, which means out of the bag, connected to the harness, but still rosetted up. And you wait for that break because you'll get a 20 or 30 minute window between cells moving through. You throw your gear out, you launch, and you fly between the squalls, and we call it squall hopping. It's extremely dangerous because the fronts that come in front of those squalls can be 35 or 40 mile an hour gust fronts. And it doesn't matter how big a big ears you can pull. It, a beeline stall isn't safe in those conditions. It just becomes erratic. So to, to be, simplify the answer, if you haven't gone through and taken the P2 flying course for paragliding, which would encompass thermaling, it would encompass a lot of these different topics that don't get covered in paramotoring, then the midday is really just a, a, a stay away unless you have a solid overcast day, which would keep your thermals down. If it's solidly overcast, then you could get away with it. But like Tom says, the first two to three hours of the morning and then three hours or so of the evening is the prime time. Um, I like to send students up towards the evening because as the, the energy of the earth glasses off, you get a more even lift of energy that comes up into the atmosphere, which gives it a little more of a lifty feel. 
but it's more of a predictable feel. In the morning time, the thermals can build really fast and really early in the morning, depending on the day. So what can feel like perfect conditions at 6.30 or 7 in the morning can be really uncomfortable and, and potentially dangerous by 8.30 in the morning. So the mornings are great, evenings are best, and that's kind of my opinion, especially I don't have to get up early. How does, how does my audio sound now? I, I took off the microphone just going back to Perfect. My... That's better. Fix it. Much, yeah, there you go. Now, sorry about that, guys. Technical difficulties. Uh, that's that's awful. No next, time, next time we know, right? Sorry, your palm tree's still waving, so it's okay. <laughs> All right, so here's something. Here's number eight. How high can a powered paraglider go? I guess we need to take that in two different uh, answers. Legally, and how high can they actually go? Tom, what do you think? Yep, so <clears throat> I usually tell people the legal limits first just so I can see their eyes widen, right? So you could take it to 18,000 feet if you wanted to. And after the shock wears off, I let them know that most people don't fly that high. The highest I've been is just under 10,000. I'm still waiting to do my high-altitude run. Um, and then I tell them about my buddy, Mark, who flew to 17,000-plus. And then um, we got another buddy in the U.K., Giles, who – did a, a mission. I don't know if you guys know Giles, but he flew, I forget how high it was. It was somewhere like 20,000 feet or something. Maybe I'm, I'm sure I'm way off, but it was, it was really high. And then you've got, you know, Bear Grylls who flew over Mount Everest, but that's yeah, a Wankel powered parajet to 31,000 feet. What? Yeah. I said Bear Grylls flew a Wankel powered, Wankel rotary motor powered parajet. 31,000 feet. Yeah. 31,000 feet. Where was that? Obviously, it wasn't. That's when he, he flew over Mount Everest. There was two oh. of them. There was him and one other. One guy turned back at like 20. Was it Gilo? It was Gilo. So. Yeah, it was Gilo, and Gilo had to turn back, and he made it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they're still yeah, on but... display. If you go to the Parajet headquarters in England, those exact two paramotors still sit today in their front office. Yep. The highest, though, I've seen without any oxygen or any special support was uh my buddy mark so you guys know mark honeycutt he uh um, yeah i mean he With literally the, uh, just the oxygen sensor in his yeah. finger <laughs> yeah and that was that was as legit as it gets he dude just got his wing out and decided to fly as high as he could go and made it to seventeen thousand plus almost 18 uh without oxygen so it can be done but don't do not, that. not advisable without oxygen don't yeah do and you gotta bundle up like you're you know it's like 80 degrees outside but you gotta yeah. bundle up like it's like that's at least degrees. least your worries for most people at that height. <laughs> so but yeah, three, it's cold. If someone three, three, to, three degrees per thousand, it gets cold as you go up. Yeah. If somebody did want to go up to eighteen thousand feet. Um, what is the thing that they have to worry most about? Oxygen, the cold, or air? <laughs> um, you can prepare for the cold, and you can file a notum uh, for airplanes, but it's oxygen's your, your main worry you can't unless you bring oxygen with you um hypoxia is your main concern so yeah kylo had a video of him pumping oxygen into his engine which he's probably can hurt his engine doing that <laughs> yeah it helped him though he got a little more power out yeah of him. but like yeah like i said mark did it with with nothing just a nitro 200 and a free flight wing yep i, I think one of the big concerns is the sheer factor 
when you start climbing into altitudes, winds start changing directions aloft and you can go from 20 miles an hour east to west to a 40 mile an hour north-south. And that shear level can really do nasty things to the wing as you try to pass through it climbing. Yeah, sounds... It could also knock you really far away from your LZ, right? You might not know you're in a 50 mile an hour tailwind or 70 mile an hour tailwind. and. Again, that goes back, like I was saying earlier, about the, the relevance of, of the world passing you by. Is without telephone poles and the, the lines on the road, you kind of lose that perception yep. of how fast you're moving. Yep. Interesting. And if you're up that high, is there a way of letting other airplanes know where you are or possibly know where they are? Nick? Yeah, if you had ADSB on you, you could uh, you know, ADSB receive. It'd be great to see other aircraft, but you'd almost need ADSB out to be able to. Uh, show where they're at or have an aircraft radio on you to you know listen for them and talk to them because that's the last thing you want is uh getting hit by a jet they're moving at, you know they're moving at 500 mile an hour we're moving at 30. there's a big difference there now to anybody's knowledge has anybody been hit by an airplane that's been flying ppg or pg not that i'm aware of but i have heard of people crashing into airplanes on the ground trying to land or avoid uh collisions close to taking off stuff like that yeah there was that picture of a guy getting towed in an airplane almost hitting his tow line i don't know if you've seen that was that real yeah someone was it getting was? towed up in a little Cessna 172 went right almost cut the line yeah so andrew i was going to ask you you mentioned some guy flying a drone or something around the Statue of Liberty. Did you see the, the there's a video? I don't know if there's a video. There's definitely a picture of a guy that got hung up on a paramotor off the of Statue of Liberty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another, yeah. Yep. Yeah, it, it looked like he flew right over the the torch. The, the torch and yeah. the torch was doing weird stuff to the wind. Like oh, it well. looked, oh yeah, it's all nice. Yeah. And then the, <laughs> hung himself from it. Yeah, he survived it. They they got him down and I guess he's a tourist and they kicked him out. <laughs> There's actually a news story on, I think it's ABC. It's still online. You can find it. So yeah. I'm having to get you know, having the guy rescue the guy, which is, it's kind of crazy. You have to get rescued from the statue of labor on your paramotor. Yeah. So what's next on the list, Sean? <laughs> Number nine, how long of a run is required to get airborne if you're foot launching? Anyone? That depends on the wind. If you have, uh, you have a stiff one wind, it take no steps. If you have no wind, it could be a 50 meter run. Yeah. So I always answer this question. I always talk about the size of the field we need to get in the air. So I always tell people that actually the run is only maybe 30 feet, even in no wind. If you get the wing up and, you know, you start booking it, you're in the air. Um, so you tell them that and they envision their front yard as an LZ. And then I always tell them, look, but you, it's more about what the air is doing and being safe doing it. And you want a big open field where you can get clean air. Um, a lot of space out in front of you so you can land if you have an engine problem or turn around. So engine problem. Yeah. I always try to describe the space requirements um, rather than the, the takeoff distance. But Sean, you're right. That is, that's what people ask. How long does it get off the ground? It's like, well, really not that far. And it takes even less to land. Like you could land in people's front yards. Most of the time it takes no, you know, if you're good, you can squeeze it in there, but getting back off the ground, you want to have a little bit more room. At least a football field size area to, to take off safely. That's probably ideal, yeah. About an acre, right? Yeah, acre, acre and a half. Just the, You want a, a nice, clear, no obstructions for a few hundred yards, so you're not trying mm -hmm. to take off and run into fire poles like some guys yeah. have done. Yeah, we've all done that, man. I've pushed it. I've set up on roads and 
you know, weaved through, through, uh, light poles. And even this, this past weekend, I, I, I set up and I had an off day. I, right. I was, I was set up and I was just wanting to get near and the grass was long and there was a ditch in front of me. And I was like, that ditch is far enough away. <laughs> and, uh, I got the wing up and it was kind of crooked. So I didn't anticipate that. Right. So I had to take some time while I was running to correct the wing. And by the time I did that, then the grass was long, so I couldn't run as fast. And by the time I did all that, the ditch was right there and I tried to push it and I ended up on my knees. Um, so yeah, you just, you want a lot, you want a lot of open space. You don't have to think about that, right? If that ditch wasn't in my head, like that ditch is coming, that ditch is coming. Um, and I might've, might've been able to save it, but I knew that ditch was coming. I didn't know where it was cause I was paying attention to the wing and, uh, yeah. It's all about your setup too. I mean, like they say in general aviation, runway behind you does you no good. Yeah. Very true. Get as far back as you can in that field, pointing at the wind, and yeah, you know, assess yeah. your your takeoff. So don't don't go starting as a new pilot flying in tight areas. Give yourself a big open field. Yeah, gives you a lot more room to make mistakes and have problems. Yeah, you might be able to get up in no wind in a real small area, and all of a sudden the wind changes. You got a problem. Sure, absolutely. So how far can you fly in a PPG? Until you run out of fuel. Yeah. Yeah. So that one, I always talk, when people ask me that, I always talk about the time. Cause that's, I mean, I say I could stay airborne for a few hours if I wanted to. Um, and as far as distance wise, I, you have to talk about the wind, right? I, there's no way around that. So I say, well, if you have a tailwind, you know, that's a big thing. Or if you have a 30 mile an hour headwind, you go zero miles an hour or, you know, you go zero miles rather. Um, so that, that can't really answer that one. Right. I may a hundred miles on a tank. You'd say on average, probably. Yeah, but many people say about 100 miles. It depends on, depends on your wing, the wind. Yeah. It depends on so many different factors. Yeah. If you go uh, five miles or 500 miles, it just really depends. Yeah. Really no one could answer it. I always tell people you're going to have to pee or you're going to run out of sunlight before uh, you run out of fuel usually. So it's not, it's not the cold. fuel. Yeah, or you get cold. Yeah, something. I generally, I generally freeze my fingers off before anything else. Yeah, you're usually done flying by the time it gets to that point. I've never, I've never wished I had more fuel and couldn't land to get it. You know what I mean? And when you, and when you run out of fuel and you're like landing, like, oh, thank goodness, my hands are numb, anyways. Yeah, yeah, it was a relief. So, how much does an engine of a PPG weigh? Does the pilot really carry all that weight on your back? for how long kevin you're an instructor what do you tell your students be prepared to wear it all day how much that's what i that i mean that's that's what i tell them be prepared to wear it all day i mean if you've got blown launches if i mean especially during training i mean when we do dozens of dry runs with the motor off before they get to a point where they're ready to take off and fly with the motor because adding the cage to the whole apparatus makes everything change going from a kiting harness and learning to bring the wing up and correcting it with you know your hips as a as a play and then getting rid of that and you know as anyone who's flown a, a fixed position cage versus a motion or a motion a, a weight shift cage can attest that having weight shift is a huge advantage to being able to correct the wing on the ground because you can just make a small shift in your position and get a large change out of the wing versus something with fixed bars where you have to actually move your whole body three feet sideways to make the correction. So they have to make these repetitious movements over and over to build the muscle memory. It just takes time. There's no way around it. I can't magically give you the blue pill. So 
when they ask, it's it's the same answer always. Just be ready to wear it all day. And if you need a break, we'll take a break. We get water. I mean, there's no shame in setting the motor down and, and stepping aside and clearing your mind. Because like Tom said, a lot of this is mental success. It's not physical success. You don't even, I mean, for me personally, I don't even notice the resistance of the wing and I don't notice the power of the motor when I'm bringing the wing up overhead or when I'm progressing into my perfect posture to get going and get up off the ground. It's not something that I'm like sitting there thinking to myself, okay, one foot, right foot, step back this, you know, it's, it's just, you just muscle memory go through it. And the only way to get that muscle memory is to establish it through repetition. So lots right, of, Andrew. lots of fire in the motor. <laughs> All right, Andrew, how much does an engine weigh and, you know, how, how, how much is it going to weigh and is it going to weigh me down? What, what, what is your take on this, Andrew? Yeah, so, so I would say the most... Um, Did we lose him? Okay. We might have lost him. Nick? Can you hear him? Hey, sir. No, Andrew's okay. there. Can you hear me? Yeah, okay. So basically, you know, they weigh about 55, 60 pounds. So the most, uh, the, the part of the day where you're like, oh, why am I doing this is right about between putting it on and then taking off, but I'm still on the newer side, so it probably will go away over time. But um, so yeah, no, basically you, you get the, um, what, what, what I do is um, three launches and then I take a break for, for a little extended period of time. And usually if I, if I blow a launch or, or uh, if, I, if I stop my launch, which is perfectly fine and you'll, you'll catch yourself doing stuff like that, is I'll, I'll unclip and reset myself back out because then I can go through the steps again to make sure that I'll have a successful takeoff again. All right, Nick, how heavy is a machine? And you know, I'm, 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 all these answers, I'm, I'm feeling like it's just going to weigh me down and help me out, man. Yeah, I'm flying a, a Air Conception AC-130. It's 47 pounds with my reserve half a tank of fuel in my flight deck. So they're not that bad. Okay. You know, I've got a bad back. I, I tend to put mine on, do my engine run up, tie into my wing, pull up and go. I mean, I'm five or 10 minutes I have the motor on my back at the most before I'm in the air. And if someone's in the air, there's no weight. You know, if someone's really worried about that, there's also trike launching. You don't actually have to, to put something on your back and go if, if weight is an issue. The apparatus that I have is really cool is I just drag it out to where I want to. I lay out my wing, I clip the wing into my apparatus. Then I sit down in my apparatus, clip in, lean forward, make sure I got the throttle, stand up, run, and I'm in the air in 15 seconds. So I only carry it for about 15, 20 seconds um, when I go out for lunch, which is not usual. It's like you guys are saying, be prepared to wear it all day long. So, on that note, um, how long does it take to learn to fly a powered paramotor? Tom, how long did it take for you to learn, and where did you learn? So, I learned in a day, um, and I, but I, when I learned, it, the sport was not very popular, right? Well, I say I learned it in a day. I took my first flight in a day, um, but I learned at, um, in Indiana at Midwest Powered Paragliding. And like I said, when I learned there was no wait list, there was no, it was a very, you know, I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't popular yet. So I walked, I walked onto the airport cause I, I found out they existed. I was going to self train just because all the schools, there was either aviator down in Florida, which I didn't have time to go to or out in California. And um, those are the main schools when I was learning. So I was like, well, I can't do that. I want to fly. You know, I think I can do it. I'm going to self train. 
turns out there was a school 15 minutes from me and it was like the only school in the Midwest at the time really that was that was anywhere near me so just got lucky showed up uh, some guy there was there flying he put a motor on my back and you know it didn't start it up or nothing but just let me feel it and smell it and you know hear the wing glide overhead and I was like all right man I'll be back tomorrow I'm gonna pay you for training and we kited all day and then I took my my flight less than 24 hours later um, wow. so it was really awesome but I was lucky enough to live right by that field right and aim right by my instructor at the time was just Dave Halcom was the only guy running it so now it's Dave Halcom and Matt Massey are the two guys that run that school um, but at the time it was just Dave because it was a, you know a smaller school um, but I showed up there and flew for months you know I would go there and ask him questions I did my first I don't know 50 60 flights under his instruction so, you know, I would, I would take off and go on small cross countries and, you know, slowly but surely expand my radius from the airport and get used to seeing the world from that view and, you know, hone my, my cross country skills and things like that. But I didn't start venturing out and doing stuff like that until, you know, maybe a year in. And then, uh, you know, so it, it, it took me, you know, less than a day to get in the air. But now, now when people ask, I say, if you want to go get formal training, the whole class is going to be two weeks long, which you'll be flying in probably a week. Gotcha. Nick, it's been a while since you uh, started doing this. It was a long time ago, back in the day, back when the dinosaurs roamed. So how, how, how did it work for you back then? It was uh, actually a friend that was doing it, and he kind of, we flew together on other aircraft. He just kind of taught me into trying it. And got some equipment, an older style shoot, and tried it. And then when I got back into it this past summer, kind of the same thing. I just went out and kited and retrained myself with the wing again and started flying. But there's a good question for Nick, right? Um, he's got experience flying 15 years ago. I mean, and think of the development we've had in wings, even in the past five years, how much easier they've gotten to launch and fly. I can't imagine what they were like 15 years ago. Nick, maybe you could tell us about that. How shocked you were when you clipped into a brand new wing. I'd say it was a lot different. I mean, back in the day, we had home-built rigs. You had to hand-prop them. Oh. <laughs> you know, today you build it, build a, put the motor on your back. You know, it's 47 pounds. My old rig I have still, it's 93 pounds with no fuel in it. You should bring that out to some fly-ins and see who can get it in the air. <laughs> I, I, I'd actually like to bring out the fly-ins do a demo. If I can get someone <laughs> that, that is, will go behind and prop it for me. I'll fly it again. Do you still have your original wing? Yes, I do. And I will never fly that. Oh, you got to bring it out though. I mean, even I bet it weighs a ton. Just as a pig to launch. <laughs> yeah, you you need about ten monitor winds, and it's almost impossible to get it up. Yeah, get, get like, to kite it. Here, kite this. It's like flying a Coleman tent. <laughs> That's about what it's like. It's actually it's more like flying a powered parachute wing uh, than a paraglider, and they were just night and day different. So I mean, once I got a paraglider in my hand and pulled it up, it was so much easier. Now with these new motors. Put it on your back, pull the cord, you know, easy to start, easy to maintain. Yeah. The, the sports have evolved so much. And every time I turn around, there's something else coming out, making it even better. I mean, they just keep getting better and better every day. Yeah. Definitely. How about you, Andrew? Um, you're kind of new to this. How, uh, how long did it take for you to take your first flight and how much training did it take? So, so, uh, um, well, I went to Aviator, and uh, it's a, it was about three days. So the guy that they partnered up with me, me and him, were um, we were the best in the class, I guess. But I've been studying this hobby for over two years, two to three years, just online, saving up my money. And um, so, yeah, the basically, um, 
you know, just all broken down is do you, do you got kiting down? Can you kite, you know, forward, back, reverse, you know, around a cone? Do you have full control of the kite? And then walking around with the motor on your back, just to feel what the motor is, lean on it, get the posture right. And then we did towing to see what taking a flight, landing a flight, and what that's all about. And then um, they don't even tell you when you're about to take your flight. They're just like, yeah, stand, uh, walk over here with me, Andrew, while you're just thinking you're going to be out there kiting. And, and you're like, okay, put the motor on. And you're like, ah, uh, here it is. But um, uh, so how how many days of training before you took your first flight? Yeah, three days. Three days. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, but but uh, it's going by their their uh, regiment. Like, I don't know if I would do it any quicker and all that, but um, I was definitely confident, you know, when I, when I got to that point. The only thing that threw me off is, is like, all the extra weight and stuff like that, and, but then you just have to do what you were trained and then come when comes right up. Take cool. off. I, um, I, I got my first uh, uh, tandem June 13th of last year. And I was hooked. I told the I signed up right then. He gave me a really old wing to learn on because uh, it wasn't a structured class like this. It was pretty much I'm not able to get up to class, which is about two or three hours away. I can do it every once in a while when I have the time and the weather's right. So he gave me an old wing, which was kind of like an Afghan with rope, and it took everything I had to kite that darn thing about three months maybe four months, I was kiting before I took my first uh, solo thing because I had my instructor in my ear because I don't think I could do it by myself. Yeah. Having an instructor in your ear is all the difference in the world from feeling really confident because I still remember that first time I, I, I ran, pushed the, the, the throttle down and started taking off. I could not hear the instructor. All I heard was wah, 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 wah. I think he was speaking English, but maybe not. Because your mind just goes a million miles an hour, and now yeah, that, you take off and you have music in your ear, you talk with your friends on the phone, and it's really no big deal. So, um, yeah, my first takeoff, I'm running down the field, running down the field, and, and there's there's so much going on that that all I hear in the ear is 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 pressure, 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 and I'm like, like about the sixth or seventh time, I'm like, oh yeah, and then I rocketed up on that Mojo Power because it doesn't take very much. And I had, I had a good amount of speed going on, but I, I just, I had everything right. But that one thing on, you know, cause it's, it's, it's a bit overload on your first flight. It is an overload. Now, but, um, Kevin, since he's an instructor, he probably hears this all the time and he can give yeah. some idea of what's going on right now. Uh, Kevin, how long does it take for a person to uh, start training and get up there? And what do you think about uh, the very first time they solo when you are talking to them, are they, going on you know brain mush or what happens so <clears throat> it just always depends on each individual student some yeah. some guys i've had a, as fly as early as one day uh, i call them cheater students though they're paragliding crossovers so they at least have the kiting aspect corrected and then we just give them what i call motor transition so they they do some dry runs around the field and just get used to getting their posture correct and what it feels like to do that. And then we hook them up into the wing and have them pull it up and do a taxi. And if the taxi looks good, then we go full throttle and send them into the sky. The nice thing about paragliding people is they at least understand the responsibility of how much brake pressure to use. 
And so that kind of worry goes away a little bit. But with new students, <clears throat> the, the one time I get the butterflies is right when they're ready to actually get lifted because everybody always wants to pick their knees up. And it's right at that time where the prop is about three inches off the ground and you're going, oh, that prop's expensive, you son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah. Expensive way to mow the field. The oh, land use, I mean, talking them in, I mean, most, most guys, the, the, the one thing that always catches them off guard is, is getting into the seat the first time. They don't know what to expect. They've seen YouTube videos where guys bunny hop their knees into the seat. They've seen YouTube videos where, like with Aviator, they'll have you stow your brake toggles and then use your hands slide in the seat. You know, there's various methods of getting up into your chair. And you don't really know what the right one for you is going to be until you're actually in the flight and learning for yourself doing it. So I, I just nope. kind of let them know, stay on the throttle, stay climbing, and, yep. you know, be calm, be patient, and, and figure, you know, it's kind of, have to say uh deep into the pool swim buddy like you're flying i mean i don't know how many times my instructor told me well you got to fly it out <laughs> i just learned if you have your if you have your motor set up right like my mind set up when i take off i have to hold my legs down if not it just tries to scoop you up in the seat i've learned to keep my legs down as long as i can i wait till i hit 100 foot and i just let it pop up well I worry about I, sitting down that's an interesting discussion about how tight you have your leg straps, because as I've noticed, if your leg straps are loose, it helps you for landing, but not so much on taking off and getting into the seat. But then if yeah, you running. take off, but you know, so it's kind of a trade-off in where that quote, perfect place is. And my leg straps don't ever stay in one spot. I can tension them, run, and by the time I'm in the air, one of them has two more inches of slack than the other one does. As we know, it doesn't matter when you're flying. It just matters when you come back to land. So sometimes it's a little wonky you know, when you have one leg hanging higher than the other. <laughs> I think it's I think it's because I'm from the RC world and I know about airspeed. And so when I took off, you know, you, you pull down and then you're like, give it back, give it back, give it back, give it back. And then I'm like thinking, okay, we need to get up some more airspeed. And then I cut my seat. I don't know. But, you know, no turning. You know, and then every now and then you'll see a student take off and turn right away, and everybody's like, "Don't do that." Well, so, well I mean, it, it's sometimes it's difficult because my first yeah. flight, I took off and I didn't realize. I mean, I knew there was torque, but I didn't understand the compensation or anything like that. So when I took off, I torqued to the right. I mean, it would pull. I yeah. Trees. Uh, you know, I barely missed a power line. That you know, I mean, nothing was in front of me. But as soon as I turned, there's buildings, trees, and everything. So. It was kind of on the scary side. Hey, Tom, it's been uh, an hour. Um, I appreciate your time. I really do. If you need to go, absolutely. We appreciate you. If not, uh, everyone stay in here. If Nick could open up this to everyone for the next 30 minutes until 8.30 my time or 9.30, what is it? Uh, Central? No. Eastern. Eastern, yeah. Uh, we'll do this for another 30 minutes and we will continue to stream this live. But Nick, if you could uh, let people know that they can jump in here, what the room number is and password, you guys are more than welcome to jump in for the next 30 minutes. Tom, how, how, how good are you? Are you able to hang in here for a little bit or you got to go? No, I'm good, man. I can hang out for a little while longer. All right. So if you guys want to see who do we have in the chat right now? Who do we have? We have, 
Oh, Sean is in here. Sean Dorr, you definitely need to come in here and tell us about your, your first flight stuff. Uh, yeah, we JP, could burn up the last half hour just listening to that right there. Absolutely. JP is here. Rip Man. Hey, Rip Man. What else is in here? Well, you guys have been talking. I didn't even realize how much talking you've been doing out there. Yeah, Sean Dorr, you need to jump in here and tell us about your, uh, your first flights. Nick is putting in the code or the uh, room number. There's no hyphens, I don't think. Yeah, just type it so, in. Yeah, so how's that, how's that three-blade EPROP treating you there, Tom? So I flew it, I flew it a couple days ago for the first time, and I don't know, man. I like it, but there's definitely pros and cons to it. So the pros, I would say um, the vibration frequency is so much higher that it's it's smoother. Right, it's definitely much, much smoother. Um, however, it is louder. It's louder in the air, and the guys on the ground told me it's louder. And it is, but it's a cool sound. I, I kind of dig it. I don't know how it's gonna work with vlogging because I didn't, I didn't make a video when I was flying it. So I gotta still test that out. And um, for whatever reason, when I'm at like cruise throttle, since the frequency is higher, um, the vibration is lower. But I'm hitting this, this resonance that was really annoying. So it was like kind of like a you know yeah yeah it was like and I, when i leaned out of my seat i couldn't hear it so it was coming through the motor into my back um you know if someone's got their youtube on still now um, but yeah so i i like it a lot i i i'm just trying it out the guys at sky sports shout out to sky sports uh, usa.net those guys are awesome um, but they sent it out to me to try out um Kind of I, I second that. View on it as, and then... as you can see here in the picture, I, I got a yeah. nice shiny new EPROP e from Kyle myself, and I'm in love with it. Cool, yeah, yeah. EPROP in general, I, I really like. So, do you, have a, do, you, do you feel like you have more thrust time with that three blade, or you just like the Yo, sound? Yeah. Or more oh, yeah, I forgot, to, I forgot to mention that. It's like the most important part, but yeah, it's got more thrust on the top end. And uh, something I didn't realize, and someone told me this before I flew it, and I totally forgot about it, but it said to me it takes more RPM to get off the ground, right? And I don't, I don't understand why that is, but it is 100% true. For whatever reason, um, I, well, it has to do with prop pitch, whatever it is, but it, it, I had to be deeper in the throttle to get off the ground because um, I'm, I'm only 150 pounds, so I don't, I don't need the entire Moster 185 thrust to take off. I don't usually use it um, you know, at full throttle to get off the ground, so – that was kind of weird to get used to, but at full throttle, man, it is, uh, it's definitely more thrust. I 100% felt that. Now, Tom, I was way you're further back in my seat. You're running the uh, less common reduction ratio on your master, aren't you? Yeah, I got a 287 reduction opposed to the 268. So, right. yeah. Yeah, and I, I don't have anything negative to say about that. Um, the only thing I could think you wouldn't like would be that it's a little bit slower response time, but with an EPROP, it's, it's really negligible. And at this point, I don't notice it. I can't, I'm, I'm so used to flying it now that I, I really don't know what it would be like to have any, any quicker. I have, I have the throttle response that, that I need for sure. So, so quick, quick question, since you've flown them both now and owned them both, which one is more comfortable in the air while you're flying the Pluma or the Scout? Which one's more comfortable? No, they're both, they were both, they're both comfortable. I don't have, um, like as far as harnesses go, I, I'm, I'm probably going to try out a Dudek power seat. 
on the, the frame that I'm flying. And to be honest with you, I wanted a deck power seat when I was flying the Scout too. So the Scout harness and the, the Adventure harness, which utilizes the, um, uh, what is it? The APCO Air Comfort, I think, or the Apert. Apco Comfort, whatever the Comfort Apco is, it utilizes or it uses. Um, but I still like the power seat better than both of those. So I'm probably going to try a power seat on this and try to make, I'm trying to make the ultimate paramotor. That's what I'm going for. Um, but yeah, I, yeah. I just so ordered that Apco harness for my new motor as well. Did you? Yeah, it's a nice harness. I really do like it. I mean, it's got like clips up top so you can fold it down and get to everything. It's a super nice harness. Um, but I just think the dude at power seat is, is, like the best harness on the market as far as comfort. I love the thick padding on the back. I love the thick padding on the shoulders. Um, if you've ever seen them in person, I mean, they're just, they're just built well. So I'm going to try oh, yeah. that. I'm going to buy them. <laughs> I'll have them both and I'll, I'll swap them out. So we try to like better, but um, yeah, the, the, uh, the torque compensations that I'm trying to optimize next. Right. So that, that's going to be the ultimate comfort I think is right. You want, you want nice, smooth, no weight shift at, at level flight. Um, and I'm having a little bit of trouble with that on the pluma just, and I think it's because of the harness, to be honest with you, I'm having trouble with the, the torque strap kind of loosens up as I'm flying. Excuse me. So mm -hmm. once I get that figured out, I think it'll be, it'll be fine. Do you, do you have, right those, um, anti-torque lamels? Have you tried those? I don't have those. Um, actually I had them. I had a bunch of them from, from PPG smoke. He just sent me a bunch. I don't know why, because I had a scout at the time, and I, I gave them all away to my friends, so I haven't tried those out. Those would do essentially exactly what I'm trying to do anyways. I'm just trying to make it look cool. So, But those would, those would accomplish the same goal. It's got to be fashionable. You can't have an all-carbon motor with the carbon literally everything. Dude, I've got carbon everywhere on it now. It's so cool. I love it. <laughs> Dude, the prop, dude, the the prop show, prop shim is carbon. Like that's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, it's cool, man. I was gonna order one until I realized they were forty three bucks. I was like, I don't need a forty three dollar prop. Hub. Yeah, it's yeah, it's like fifty bucks opposed to ten or something like that. But looks cool, man. <laughs> Twelve for the aluminum one. Yeah. Well, nothing on my motor is carbon. I got an aluminum motor, so my new frame will have some carbon. They don't have carbon spars, so. Uh, cool man. I don't. I don't. Like I told my buddy, I'm like when I, I'm like when I fly by it, at, 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 you know, 30 feet in the air doing wingovers, whatever. I'm like, you're not gonna see that hub going by anyway. No, it's all about on the ground. You take it out of the truck, and people are like, ooh, that's that looks cool. <laughs> After that, it doesn't matter. I always yeah, love it when people start pulling over and they start waving and taking pictures. We were flying over this field over uh, Mother's Day yesterday morning. And uh, this farmer was disking a field, and I sat there and did a, a piro around his tractor about three feet, four feet off the ground, wingtip. And he's just climbed out of the tractor and chased me the whole way around filming. It was hilarious. Yeah. Like that kind of experience is what makes me feel great about flying paramotors. It's, it's seeing the other people that get lit up by it and they just think it's the coolest thing. It's like, yeah, oh, yep. yeah. When I fly the beach, it's the same thing. All little kids come out, the cameras fly up. Yeah, you just remember they think it's cool the first time, the second time they're like, yeah. oh, there he is again. And the third time you're annoying. <laughs> now we we go way yeah, exactly, down the beach exactly. and then we come back and that's it. We do like one pass out and one pass yeah. back. So they're like, that's cool and it's cool and you're cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's enough space in between that yeah they don't see us again for a while. That's good. I, see, I that's the, the beach. Beach is kind of noisy that, anyway. 
that's the one thing like I tell people about flying out of an airport is airports have airplanes that fly out of them. Airplanes are generally pretty noisy. People are, that live near airports kind of are used to the noise. So when you fly out of airports, it's not so much of a drastic, abrupt noise for their day and they tolerate it a little bit better. Yeah. So what are we seeing here? We're seeing John's screen. Yeah, you guys were talking about the Lamel, so I had them on my Maverick, and I think they did help a little bit. Um, yeah, they help. They definitely help. I flew uh, for a little while. I had a, um, a SkyTap Angel I was demoing, uh-huh. and uh, it, 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 I don't know if it had any torque compensation built into the frame itself. I don't think, think it's just such a great weight shift machine that you just have to kind of shift a little bit. But I didn't like it without the torque lamels. And once I put the torque lamels on, it made it – it was night and day difference. So I had never flown a machine with them before, and I kind of questioned, do they work? But See, um, now, that, that Angel has really nice uh, netting on it, though, doesn't it? Yeah, it's got super solid netting. But, I mean, really, as long as the netting doesn't – I mean, even if it moves a little bit, once it stops moving, if the lamels are still on there, you know, you're going to be getting that, that effect. Unless, of course, they – the angle shifts on, on the lamel that would affect the, it. the sure. problem i had is that where the, where the zip ties mount to it it frayed the strings and on the maverick it's not dyneema or anything it's just like for i, I don't understand how they just put regular string on it for as much as they charge for that net mm-hmm. but, uh, it frayed. it's like a cod it's like a cod <laughs> it's a cod fishing net. yeah it's it's not it I don't know. Every spot that I had a lamel, it started to fray, and yeah. uh, my net is just shredded right now. Well, that's not good. Yeah, so I took them all off. But I Nick on the chat has asked, um, anyone ever make their own net? Yeah, I restrung. I restrung my Parajet cage right after I got it because it had a busted bunch of busted lines in the cage. I've I've seen people do under over weaving nets, and then they put um, miniature tie wraps at the joints. There's, people do that before. there's some really good videos on YouTube about repairing like fishing nets. You can, if mm. you put enough time into it, you can literally do it so that it looks like it was never there, but it's just, it, it takes time and it's, it takes practice. Yeah. So. Kylo Glee built his own net for his dirty bird, which is the pair motor that he built mm-hmm. from scratch and he, he made his own net. Yeah. Look, can see more on that machine. It. See if he's done, he hasn't done with it yeah. a long time with that thing. He said where the J-bars mount to the chassis, they started to show fatigue, so he stopped flying it. There's a a guy on YouTube that makes custom, or a guy on uh, Facebook that makes custom nets out of Dyneema. Um, You just have to, like, rivet it to your hoop, which kind of sucks, so. That's not too bad. Kyle's going to do a dirty bird mark, too. Mm -hmm. Just for the hell of it. Got there. Uh, look, look what came in the mail today. I see JP got his too. Nice. Yes, came in. Finally, came in. I charge it up. When did uh, you order yours, Sean? Uh, last year, I think. Yeah, same here. I ordered mine in October. They are really bright. All I see is bright light now. What did I do that for? And they're all over the place. They won't stop. Stop. Oh, so, strobes. You were supposed to read. 
I need the instructions first. I can't see. I can't see. Yeah, I got to put it in the back. Don't turn on a direct light. <laughs> Did yours come with instructions, Sean? No, no. But um, the the curved one like this is for the helmet. That's the main one. Yeah. And then when you turn on the other ones, they sync. Yep. So they should all sync together. And these go in the wings, probably in your butthole. Hey, how light are those? You have to specify which butthole. Somebody might do the. They're a million lumens light. And they even come with um, the red and green, so you can put them you know, out on your wing. Um, all right, I really can't see nothing right now. I don't know who's up. see a flashing light on some dude's head, and you see a flashing light underneath his seat, and you're like, what the hell? Mm -hmm. but, uh, just, but it looks. John just went back. Uh, there's something loose in here. That's kind of frustrating. That's not good. Yeah, can you guys that hear that? Broken. Yeah, I can hear it over here. I gotta make a mount for my extra battery for my GoPro. Nothing loose. But this one right here, I was thinking I could probably, because they have big holes on uh, both sides, I could probably mount that on the top of my angel frame or to the to the spring or something like that. So I don't I don't think that this would be really good for your helmet, but they said this is for your helmet. It goes the other way though, Sean. Yeah. It's heavy. I don't know. What you do is you paint it like a pipe. People are like, what the hell? Looks like a pipe. <laughs> yeah, they're so, they're extremely bright, so I can't wait to take them out and uh and go for a strobe. Stroll, stroll. Take a, a tank and a coil and then use it for a vape. Get enough battery power. <laughs> the joy of having kids and a dog has shown me that they put these little strobe balls inside bouncy ball toys, and my dog ate the ball, but the little light is still intact. <laughs> so I, I disassembled it and then took the mercury switch or contact switch that would make it turn on with contact, like bouncing it. And I just soldered it to a little push button on off switch and then put a little piece of heat shrink over it. And the damn thing is actually pretty freaking bright. And you can see, you can cycle through it. And as you cycle through it, it's got like three or four different pre-programmed LED flashes that'll do with different light patterns. Mm -hmm. So I took, I took that little thing and just put a little piece of Velcro on it in the back of my helmet. And as I click on it, it'll sit there and do these little weird light dances on the back of my head. It's funny. Put a couple of those in your wing on the tips of it or something. Oh, I've, if as soon as they open the family fun center back up, dude, I'm going back to that claw machine straight away. Dude, no, uh, Dollar Tree has stuff like that. I'm just, I'm just, that's where they got it. We, we, I took the kids to the fun center while they were there. My, my daughter goes to the claw machine. And first, first pull, she comes up with it and she is all excited. <laughs> JP, you're blowing up my screen over here. Good lord. <laughs> they, are they are bright. And the thing is you can't you can't go like you can't get away from them because they're 360. No matter what you do, you, you're gonna you're gonna have them in your eyes. They're they're bright. And now JP's blind for the next five minutes. Who said that? <laughs> hey, I will say I'm a little concerned. Like they're kind of bulky. Like to be really? going in your wingtips, not like. Uh, well, I mean, well, I, 
Well, I watch this. Well, I'm going to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger here in a minute. These are heavy. These are not light like I thought they were. And with these things so heavy in your wing, I mean, hey, your wing won't hold back on you. It's not going to overfly you anymore. It's going to hang back good. No, but See, you know, stick this, not, stick don't this just, in your butthole just, in, you know, it's, you're going to feel it. You should have had a sensitive wing and it was pulling on your brake and you're like, oh, I will, shit. Uh, here, I'll do a, are we still uh, live? We're still live for another nine minutes and then we're going to call it uh, on the actual podcast and then so, we're going to play on the after for Planet YouTube, a uh, little comparison, I guess. Uh, this is yeah. the smoke versus the aviator. Um, that aviator is definitely a hundred times smaller and lighter. Wow. But, um, you know, everything has pros and cons. It doesn't sink. It doesn't have the uh, battery life or the um, option to change the colors of the lens. Um, you know what I want to see, and I was I was talking to Ryan about this was uh, uh, like uh, to be able to have like a Bluetooth switch or something, so that way, like from your phone or or a little handheld. Yeah, that would be slick. A button or something, so you could pull them on and off. Because I mean, if I take off with an hour for sunset, and I have planned out maybe say like my hour and a half flight, I'm gonna go 30 minutes beyond sunset. I don't necessarily want to have the strobe the entire. Flight. I want to be able to just turn them on when it's time. And well, yeah, you can on. do that. Yeah, I was gonna say the PPG smoke does that, doesn't it? Yeah, it you, does. Yeah, you turn you turn these two on, and they're not on. But like this are, is on right now. These are on. So yep. as soon as I turn on this one, which is right next to me, then they should sync up and flash. There they go. Yep. Don't open your eyes. That's the same one. Light sensor on it though. I turn this one. Come on, automatically at dusk. If they're syncing, then they're syncing through some type of protocol. Maybe yeah. they're reading. Maybe it's maybe one sees the flash of the other and it so, just turns so on that this, way. This is on the wings and this is on your helmet, so you just turn it on. I keep getting or trying to get Todd Scandage to join the show and he says he won't do it because he's in his underwear. But I said I'm not wearing any pants. I know. Get a get a cam mic and be like <laughs> yeah, get on here. Just don't, you know, don't stand up like gorilla. Well, I said I figured you were in your underwear. That's why I was asking you to join the show. A well, gorilla yeah. be up standing up with no underwear, so that's a different story. <laughs> well, you know, I think that we're going off some serious, uh, you know, PPG topics, and we're starting to talk about, you know, naked men and, uh, you know, the internet. So, how about we call this one tonight? You guys, thank you very much for watching. Uh, subscribe if you haven't. You can hear this right now uh, on our paratalk.org, which is on iTunes. You can go over to ilovepg.com and watch it on Nick's channel. And if you really, really like it, I might even drop a copy on myppggrandpa.com. Um, Tom, thank you very much for hanging out with us. How do we get up with you on social media? So, um... On YouTube, I'm just Tom Kubat, K-U-B-A-T. And then on Instagram, I'm also Tom Kubat. So either of those. Instagram, I post more, but I try to do at least a, a video a week or two. Well, thank you very much, Tom. Nick, yeah. um, tell us uh, how we can get up with you. Yeah, the YouTube channel is under my call sign, K-C-H-O-R-W, Kilowatt, Charlie 8, Oscar, Romeo, Whiskey. Or go to ilovepg.com. 
Great. Andrew, how do we get up with you? Uh, just look on YouTube for uh, Andrew Finnegan. Um, you should be able to find me. I got only about three or four paramotor videos on there, but it, then you'll see my extensive FPV stuff and like electric car style, a bunch of crazy stuff on there. And uh, Kevin, uh, let's say that somebody wants to get up with you and maybe train. How do we get up with Kevin Can Fly? Uh, you can get at me at Instagram at Kevin Can Fly, Facebook at Kevin Can Fly, or send me a message on any of my YouTube videos at Kevin Can Fly on YouTube. Okay, and JP, you came in here, so why not? Uh, tell us how we can get up with you. Oh, uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I'm on YouTube and Instagram just as uh, JP Tulo, T U L O. Um, if you message me on Facebook, uh, I'll message you back. <laughs> well, that's, well, that's I'm not too cool. Kind of you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is where you come with the promise to say, oh, if you sub to me, I will promise to sub back. Sub, sub, yes. sub. Sub back, sub back. And Bob even came in here. So, Bob, I mean, you're here, you know, might as well ask you, how can we get up with you on the internet? What do you do? Well, I'm he on the uh, store shop. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I'm on. Uh, I have nothing on YouTube. I, I share a lot of videos. I've got an entire 11 subscribers. But uh, yeah, I'm on uh, Facebook. That's my name. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been uh, very interesting. And you guys, if you enjoy what you've seen, leave some comments down below. Uh, if you are on iTunes listening to this, make sure you run over to iloveppg.com. Leave some comments on iTunes, and we will see you next week on PPG Adventures, where we might have some more guests if they really like the show that they're listening to now. Y'all have a great evening. Thank you so much. Nick, we are out. Yeah, please like and subscribe. And, uh... Well, y'all, thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Remember, you'll be able to see the stream live if you go to I love ppg.com every Monday night at 7 Central, 8 Eastern. And also, if you miss it, no big deal. I will also put it on ppggrandpa.com. Thank you, Tom Kubat and everyone else that was here. And we will catch you next time on PPG Grandpa's Paramotor Podcast. Have a great evening.